Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It's ready. After 19 years and 2,166 pledge drives, the Dankosky Building medium-sized super collider is ready. The 146th most powerful particle collider in the world. Actually, it's the 147th, it turns out. The one they have at the Best Buy in Dallas is more powerful. The floor model? I know, I know. Hey, see where it says IKEA on those big magnets? Can you put some tape over that? Because they didn't pay us anything. There is no reason to give them any publicity. Why is there a cat tethered out there in the tunnel? Oh, that's Schrodinger's cat. It's been both alive and dead for 79 years. So this will resolve the question? No, it'll just kill the cat. Do you know how much food that thing has consumed in 79 years? You could feed a developing country. At least we don't have to worry about creating a black hole that will devour space and time. Well, not all of it. What does that mean? Well, it won't devour all of space and time, but reality will change. According to my calculation, this Twinkie will elongate until it's 48 feet long and the width of a human hair. Then it'll disappear, emerging seconds later in the gravitational field of Arcturus, a red giant star which is 36.7 light years away, and which ordinarily is the third brightest star in the sky, but which, after we turn on our collider, I'll be able to blink on and off by using the wall switch that used to control my kitchen lights. Also, Wednesday will be some kind of a bird instead of the day of the week. Maybe we should warn people. Hey, did Galileo warn people when he invented bread? Did Newton warn people when he superglued a steam engine to a saxophonist? That's totally inaccurate. Three, two, one, here we go! It's working fine! So listen to this show about the search for the Higgs boson. Wow, I think that was Nevada flying by like a frisbee. And now Flamingo is his favorite day of the week, Colin McEnroe. I'm very concerned about those irresponsible scientists here at the Dankosky building. I don't think they should have turned on the super collider yet. I don't even think it's a very good super collider. But we're going to talk to you about real good super colliders uh, and, in fact, uh, about the big one. Uh, we're going to talk to you about this, the search for the Higgs boson. This is all apropos of uh, the debut of Particle Fever, which is, uh, in fact, a documentary movie, the story of the Large Hadron Collider and the search for the Higgs boson, which is opening at Real Artways in Hartford this Friday. Uh, and uh, the show starts at 7 p.m. It will be followed by a post-film discussion with two of our guests today, UConn Professor Philip Mannheim, who's been with us many times before, uh, and Yale Professor uh, Sarah Demers. Uh, you're going to meet them in just a second. Uh, I do want to say, I've just I've seen this movie, and it actually did, I think, unless I have a false sense of uh, of security and a false sense of understanding, I think for the first time maybe I do understand, at least to a certain degree, what this whole thing was about. Um, I also noticed that they do say boson instead of boson. Is that Philip Mannheim? Is it boson or boson? What do you say? Boson. It's boson. All right. Yeah. So it's like with a Z almost. Yeah. almost All right. Yeah. So um, so I just want to be cool. 
so we're going to start, uh, though, with uh, Michio Kaku, uh, a theoretical physicist who's also been on the show before. He's the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including his most recent, The Future of the Mind. He's a professor of theoretical physics at City College of New York. He's also a futurist and the co-founder of String Field Theory. And uh, he's joining us, I believe, from uh, somewhere in Switzerland. Is that right, uh, Dr. Kaku? Are you somewhere in Switzerland? That's right. I'm in Zurich, and Zurich is ground zero for relativity. Einstein got many of his ideas for special and general relativity right here in Zurich, where I am standing right now. We decided just to send him, uh, Dr. Kaku, to Switzerland, just to give this uh, whole thing a, a ring of authenticity. Um, so um, maybe you can begin. And I'm going to ask all three guests to do essentially the same thing, but you get to go first, uh, Dr. Kaku, because you're in Switzerland. Um, in a way that, that won't be too intimidating to people who aren't that well scientifically grounded, explain why there is such a thing as the Large Hadron Collider, why there's a search for the Higgs boson. What does it matter? Well, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks asked the question, what is the world made of? And we're still trying to answer that question. Now we know that atoms represent about 4% of the universe, but when you smash atoms, you get thousands of subatomic particles coming out, and you get a jigsaw puzzle. The last missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle is called the Higgs boson. And so we hope to create what is called the standard model. It doesn't describe the entire universe because gravity is missing, but we do now understand at least the low energy sector of our universe, and then we begin to understand the creation of the universe. Because when you study these subatomic particles, you're really going backwards in time, 13.7 billion years to the instant of creation itself. So once you answer the question, what is the world made of, you also begin to understand the question, how was the world created? So that's a good question, and uh, I'm going to just throw, I'm going to kind of reword it uh, to uh, some of our our other uh, guests here. Uh, Dr. Sarah Demers is an assistant professor of physics at Yale University. She's joining us uh, from the Yale University studios right now. So, um, Dr. Sarah Demers, you know, we talk about the standard model, and then for those of us who aren't physicists and who don't understand anything, it sounds as though when you guys start talking about the standard model, you're simultaneously talking about this immaculate way of explaining the universe with a certain kind of order and symmetry and a kind of uh, a sense to things. And you're also talking about this model that has these, these just gaping holes that you could drive not just a truck but the Starship Enterprise through, that it, it's, it just seems so massively incomplete in some ways that, that, that how can it be this really great way of talking about things? So the way I like to think about the standard model that I hope might be kind of accessible is to think about the um, chemistry. People might be more familiar with the periodic table of elements, right? We have some understanding how elements are all organized. The thing that the standard model does for us is take what we've managed to detect and put some order around it. And the thing that's exciting about the standard model is that what it covers, it really does brilliantly, meaning you can make predictions about how these particles will behave using the rules of the standard model and actually get things right to an amazing precision over and over and over again with all these different tests that we've managed to throw at it. So the, the problem with the standard model is going back to this periodic table of the elements. It's like you have a picture that only includes metals, 
and does nothing else. We know that the standard model is just missing many, many, many things. And some of the things that the standard model does, some of its solutions are also unsatisfactory. So it's this combination of um, something that works beautifully and something that's just fundamentally flawed at the same time. Um, Dr. Philip Mannheim, uh, who we should say is professor of physics at the University of Connecticut and the author of Brain Localized Gravity, um, when we say fundamentally flawed, when she says fundamentally flawed, explain what's missing here. What's missing is dark energy, right? Um, I wouldn't say it was fundamentally flawed. I would say that it's incomplete. All right. And let me try to answer that and then come back to the dark energy question. Uh, One of the key features of the standard model and one of the big ideas behind the whole story is where does mass come from? Why do objects have mass? If we think of the periodic table, it's laid out in a sequence of increasing mass from one element to the next. So where does all this mass come from? The Higgs boson is a key piece of explaining where mass comes from but has not given yet a complete answer. But it's a step in that direction. And now, what, why, what, is, what is the whole issue of mass? And let's try to understand it. Suppose I give you a box, and I ask you to push the box along the ground. You'll push the box. Now I'm going to put mud on the ground and slush, and I'm going to ask you to push it again, and you'll find it's a lot harder to do. Now, if you didn't know about the mud and the slush, you would say, the box is heavier. That's why it's taking me, it's so much harder to push it. But what is going on with the Higgs boson is the Higgs boson is the analog of the mud and the slush, but we can't see it. It's not a visible uh, medium in which it's more difficult to get objects to move, and so we've had to infer this very, very indirectly, and that's how the standard model of uh, interactions has been developed. Now, to try to explain it very simply, the Higgs boson discovery is the end of a 50-year story, which itself began because of a previous 50-year story. What was discovered a hundred years ago was a phenomenon called superconductivity. Now, superconductivity is, in principle, is very, very valuable because ordinarily when you send a current through a wire, the wire gets very hot and all of that heat is wasted. And this is why things are not energy efficient. The superconductor has this very strange feature that there's no energy dissipation. And so wires made of superconducting material would be able to be much better transmission lines. The price that we pay at the moment is we have to cool them down almost to absolute zero to get them to be superconductors, and that costs us more energy than we would eventually get out, though that's the physics that goes into the construction of the Large Hadron Collider. So why, why do the superconductors not dissipate heat? because they're creating inside of them the analog of this mud, this slush, this molasses, and particles propagating in them, suddenly it's much harder to do that, and that's what we recognize as as the mass. So the Higgs boson is just a fancy way, a very theoretical way of describing this phenomenon, which is really superconductivity. Now, 
the, the, 50, the 250 years, superconductivity was discovered at the beginning of the 19th century by Kamerling Omnes and was not explained until the 1950s by Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer. As soon as they did that, people like Anderson started to think about what, they were, what had been done and realized that this could generalize to things like the propagation of light. Mm. And, you know, I'm going to just stop that, you there because it's getting very complicated. Okay. And, and that's what led on, and, and I'll finish, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. what started the Higgs, uh, the Higgs work. Um, I, I want to sort of just sort of keep this as much as possible on the plane of the people who either didn't finish their physics class or never took one. So I am just want to um, keep things... Uh, well, anyway, I, I'm going I'm to sort of redirect this just a little bit. Uh, so one of the things that this movie uh, that some people are going to be seeing does an interesting job of is talking about the difference between theoretical physicists and experimental physicists. Uh, and, and you see both of them uh, in this movie. Uh, but one of the things that emerges, and, and Michio Kaku, I'm going to start with you uh, again and just uh, see whether the way the movie presents it uh, conforms to the way that you think about these things. As you're watching this movie develop, as I'm watching this movie develop, you start to see that there are two possibilities being contemplated, especially by the theoretical, theoretical physicists, as they're watching this search for the boson and, and then the measurement of the boson. And, and what they say is that on the one hand, there's this notion of supersymmetry, that, that, that somehow or other, we'll, uh, if we get enough information, we'll understand why the universe works why stars can be formed, why, why other things can be formed, why, why ultimately life can exist, because there are rules and there are laws and, and things kind of do work and fit together for a certain reason. Um, but they also raise the possibility that um, that might not be the case and that we might be living in one tiny sliver of a multiverse, that our universe just kind of happens to work just for whatever random reasons uh, a certain way. But it really isn't the way everything, capital E, everything is. Everything's much more randomized. Everything's much more chaotic. We just happen to have lucked out and we're in this little sliver of stuff that works kind of in a nice way. But that isn't really the way all of physics is at all. Um, so uh, they, they set it up, and you actually do – it's like you're watching a thriller all of a sudden. You, you kind of want to know which one of those things is, is the case. I mean, is that a reasonable understanding of the questions that they're talking about? Um, yes, except I would say that these two opposite, diametrically opposed points of view are really the same point of view. I'm a theoretical physicist, and we believe that at the beginning of time there was something called perfect symmetry. Think of a crystal. It was perfect, but it was also unstable because of quantum corrections. This crystal exploded, giving you the electromagnetic, the gravitational, and the nuclear forces. Our world today is horribly broken. But if you can run the videotape backwards to the vision of time, then we realize that this singularity was like a perfect crystal, perhaps held together by something called supersymmetry. Now, just two weeks ago, we had gravity waves detected from this instant of creation, but the media missed the whole point, that if there was this quantum event called the Big Bang, which gave off gravity waves, and it's a quantum theory, it means it could happen again and again and again. And so, in other words, Big Bangs could be happening even as we speak, giving us a multiverse. So even if each universe things are horribly broken, that if you run the videotape backwards, each universe started in a state of perfect symmetry. 
Now, I work in something called string theory, which naturally incorporates this picture. We do believe, though we cannot prove, that there is a multiverse of universes with big bangs happening all the time. But each bang, each bang involves symmetry breaking. That is, there's a singularity or this perfect crystal, which is unstable. It shatters to create the different kinds of forces that we see today. And so, in that sense, the two pictures that you mentioned are really the same thing. Although it's not, well, I mean, first of all, uh, you you confused me a little bit, but I mean, for very good reasons, because I like to understand everything so dichotomously. Uh, Philip Mannheim uh, sounds like a little bit like he's, if we gave him a T-shirt, he'd probably say Team Multiverse, though, whereas I'm assuming your t- T-shirt says Team Supersymmetry, uh, Team Standard Model. Um, my T-shirt well, says almost none of those. Um, <laughs> I think the issue of the Higgs boson itself and the nature of mass creation doesn't force us to all of these questions of the very early universe, though those are important questions which are also being explored at the at the Large Hadron Collider. The supersymmetry is crucial for certain things, but is not necessarily a law of nature. We have yet to demonstrate that it's a law of nature. In fact, it was hoped that the Higgs boson would appear with some nearby supersymmetric analog, but that seems not to have occurred in the experiment. So I'm much more of a minimalist. I say, try to understand things in our universe alone, and if we can't, then something in our universe is going to tell us that we'll have to go to the multiverse picture. Now, the other reason why these things are connected is the thing you just mentioned, namely dark energy, because dark energy itself is related to the origin of mass scales. And that goes under the name of Einstein's cosmological constant. So the problems are very much interrelated, and the hope was that the Large Hadron Collider would give us some very helpful clues. And it's given us one, that the Higgs boson does exist, but hasn't yet given us the key clue, which is that supersymmetry exists as well. In just a second, I'm going to have Sarah Demers uh, resolve this whole thing for me. Uh, but before I do that, uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, um, I-, I sensed a, a little tremor coming down the line uh, that you didn't really like the way I characterized what's on your T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we string theorists believe that there was a Big Bang, that there was supersymmetry at the beginning of time, and when the Big Bang exploded, it shattered the supersymmetry, and that's where the Higgs boson comes in. The purpose of the Higgs boson is that it's involved in breaking these original symmetries. Therefore, this Higgs boson is really part of a family, a family of perhaps many Higgs bosons. Every time you shatter a symmetry of this original singularity or crystal, you require a Higgs boson. So in other words, you need a match, a match that set off the Big Bang. What put the bang in the Big Bang? We don't know, but one possibility is the inflaton. We think there was a Higgs-like particle at the beginning of time that was the spark. It was the match that set off the universe, blew up the universe, breaking supersymmetry, creating the universe that we have today. And then the multiverse idea comes in because we think that symmetry breaking can happen repeatedly, each time creating a different universe. And so each universe has its own physics. Each physics is different. But on top of that is a metaphysics. 
this metaphysics, we think, might be string theory. All right. So, um, Sarah Demers, I'm going to go over to you uh, now. One thing that we should say is that you have been working uh, at CERN uh, and you have been part of the so-called uh, Atlas team, uh, which looks very specifically uh, at all this stuff. First of all, you know, in the movie and maybe and the movie's a movie and so it, it may simplify things. But I really did get the feeling that it was you know, kind of like Twilight. There were vampires and uh, there were werewolves. You know, there were people who were really into supersymmetry and the whole idea that everything was going to be explained ultimately in a symmetrical, uh, friendly way. Uh, and then other people who sort of did feel the, as though we were going to have to pull this longer shot out and, and look at a very chaotic universe. Is I mean, do people sort of talk that way while they're walking around the property there? I think, yeah, it's on people's minds. I mean, these big questions are definitely on on everyone's minds as we're going through the analyses. But um, as an experimentalist, I I have a T-shirt that says data on it. (laughs) And I think that's my job, right, is is to be aware of what all of these theories are, think about how any particular machine will let us try to answer some of these questions, but at the end of the day, try to also be driven by what we see in the data itself, and and uh, yeah, not not be too biased by any of these particular ideas. It's it's just about impossible um, to not be biased or or not have something that's your favorite idea. But my T-shirt says data. All right, that's a great way to end our first segment. Uh, when we come back, and by the way, if you have questions about this, there are a few people calling in already with unbelievable. Hopefully complicated questions. Uh, but if you have, do have questions or comments, our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. When we come back, we will spend a little time just talking about this gigantic machine that was built to answer these questions, which, as Michio Kaku say, go back to the actual Big Bang and the, the moments after the Big Bang. So we're talking about the search uh, for the Higgs boson, the measurement of the Higgs boson. Our guests are Dr. Philip Mannheim, professor of physics at the University of Connecticut, Dr. Sarah Demers, assistant professor of physics at Yale University, Dr. Michio Kaku, theoretical physicist and the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including his most recent, The Future of Mind. And for the people who um, were writing to us and tweeting to us right now at WNPR Colin, where you should follow us, uh, some person asked, what's the practical purpose of all this? What's the practical result? Is there any practical result to the Higgs boson? We, I promise you, towards the end of the show, we will discuss that very topic. Uh, but we have a little ways to travel before we get there. Um, so um, I do want to um, say, oh, and I, the other thing I want to say is uh, at WNPR.org, we're going to post some, some material connected to this show. One of the things that we will post is a really funny, really great video that uh, Dr. Demers had some association with. Although, Dr. Demers, once you heard Philip Mannheim talk about pushing the box through the mud, I'm sure you wish that you could have added him to, to that video because uh, the, the whole video is sort of, it begins with various physicists using their own pet analogy for explaining uh, how the boson field works, right? That's right. He's on the sequel. He's booked. I'm going to see him Friday night, so there's time. <laughs> All right. Um, it's, I, I won't give away too much about it. It's, the, the, whole, the premise of the video is that uh, she is going to create a dance, uh, an actual dance, uh, in which the Higgs boson 
uh, and the Higgs field are explained. And there's sort of a punchline to that, which I won't ruin. Uh, but, any, but, but the first thing you see are a whole lot of physicists. One guy has a lake uh, as, as his uh, metaphor. Another guy has a cocktail party that Barack Obama walks into as his metaphor. And they're, they're all sort of uh, bringing out their pet model. Well, I mean, that's one way to talk about all this. And it's one of the ways theoretical physicists talk about it. They also talk about it in, just in terms of numbers and equations and constants. But the other thing that uh, has happened, Sarah Demers, is the building of a gigantic machine in which some of these questions can be tested. Uh, and that's where you come in, right? That's where, And that's where Team Atlas comes in. Um, once again, in a way that won't be too scary or too time-consuming, give us, give people a listen. What, what, what actually is the Large Hadron Collider? What is this machine? So the Large Hadron Collider is the highest energy collider that we have right now. Um, and it's you can think about it like a time machine because it's going to really high energy densities and lets us go after some of those uh, early universe questions. But physically, it's a machine that brings protons to close to the speed of light, so going very, very, very fast, and then smashes them together at a number of locations. Um, the Large Hadron Collider itself is a 27-kilometer-around ring and it uh, is 100 meters underground, and it smashes these protons at four different locations. So the, the, that machine is what we call our accelerator, but then you have to figure out, okay, we did these smashings of particles. Now how do we actually figure something out from it? So at these different locations where the, the particles are collided, some of the most expensive real estate probably um, on the planet, it is, uh, there are detectors that are built. So the detector that I work with, that's the collaboration I work on. I don't work on smashing the protons themselves. I work on understanding what happened after those collisions happened. It's the Atlas detector. It was built over decades by, um, we're up to about 3,000 people who are working on it, analyzing the data, keeping it running. It weighs as much as the Eiffel Tower, and it's about six stories high and the length of a football field in order to basically um, take pictures of these collisions and try to piece everything back together so that we can answer some of these big questions. And you're looking for things, uh, if I understood it correctly, that are a 1,000 times smaller than the proton, Right. Yeah, I, it's even hard to put a, a length scale on these particles. We're looking for the fundamental particles, so the things that are the smallest particles of all. Mm. We're looking for things that, that haven't been seen, and we're looking for things that haven't been thought of. We, we've, we're trying to, you know, that's the experimentalist's hat on. We're, we're trying to design experiments in a way that we'll be able to have access to something that's surprising. And I think you're answering this question right now, but let me just ask it again a certain way. So we know, I mean, those of us who read the news about it know that we appear, you appear to have found, not you personally, uh, a Higgs boson, seen the Higgs boson, even begun to measure the Higgs boson. But this, this Large Hadron Collider doesn't exist specifically for the job of that one particle, right? It's, it's really asking bigger questions and questions that will go on and on and on after this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what makes the Higgs special about this is that it, we knew that with the Large Hadron Collider running at these very high energies, we would able to be able to find the standard model Higgs boson or, or conclusively say, hey, we looked and it's not there. So that's what makes the Higgs special in terms of motivating the Large Hadron Collider because it's an important particle. But we're also looking for um, mini black holes. We're looking for extra dimensions and gravitons and certainly evidence of 
supersymmetry and, um, you know, new exotic particles. So many, many different analyses. Hundreds of papers have come out in the past few years using the same data set that also got us the Higgs. And are you pretty comfortable saying it's there, we found it, sigh of relief, question resolved? Um, Okay, so I'm pretty comfortable saying it's there, we found it. There's some small chance that this Higgs boson that we found is actually one of those five supersymmetric Higgs bosons that were referred to before. So in terms of exactly what this particle is, it's a Higgs boson, but but the verdict is still at least slightly out on whether or not it's the the standard model Higgs boson or supersymmetric. But it's I wouldn't say it's a sigh of relief. I mean, <laughs> it's excitement and it's wonderful and thrilling and at the same time deeply tragic because it, in some ways it would have been great if we didn't have the standard model Higgs boson, but the explanation for mass was actually something that gave us help in terms of um, – you know, giving us access to some of these other big questions. The standard model Higgs boson ties up that nice, neat picture of the standard model that's so beautifully self-consistent and doesn't let us go um, further in an obvious direction. Um, I heard a throat clearing uh, from Switzerland. So I want to ask both of the other physicists, uh, Phil Mannheim and uh, Michio Kaku, to react to that a little bit. Um, I'll start with you, uh, Michio Kaku, uh, in Switzerland. Um, Once you got the news... Uh, about the Higgs boson, D- did that make you think a certain set of things? In other words, did 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 it lead you to a certain set of conclusions, or or cause you to have more confidence in in ideas that you already held? Well, I've lived with the Higgs boson for thirty years uh, since I was a grad student. If we did not find the Higgs boson, we would have had a heart attack. <laughs> uh, most of uh, quantum field theory would collapse if we did not have the Higgs boson. So I knew it was going to be there. But you see, then the larger question is, well, why is the standard model so ugly? It's perhaps one of the ugliest theories ever proposed in the history of science. It has 36 quarks. It has over 19 free parameters that you can adjust. It doesn't mention gravity. as It has three carbon copies or generations of subatomic particles. It's a theory that only a mother can love. <laughs> And so we think, therefore, there has to be a higher theory, a higher theory that could explain the other 96% of the universe, which is missing from the standard model. And that's why I work on something called string theory, where we take the entire standard model and just consider it the lowest octave, the lowest set of vibrations of a vibrating string. And that dark matter, which we see in outer space with the Hubble telescope, this invisible matter that surrounds our galaxies, we think that's nothing but the next vibration, sort of like the next octave of these vibrating strings. And so that would give beauty to, these, uh, to this theory. Now, I'm a theoretician, and what guides theoreticians in the main is to create be- theories which are beautiful and elegant and simple. As Einstein said, the theories should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And the standard model is anything but simple. It is this gangly, horrible part theory that sort of like stands, stands out because it is so ugly compared to Einstein's theory of relativity. And that's why we think that the standard model is just nothing but the first step, the first step toward finding higher symmetries, larger beauty, beauty, beautiful structures, and eventually going to the instant of the Big Bang itself.
You know, Phil Mannheim, that makes me circle back to something you said earlier in this conversation, which is that uh, you keep looking at the universe and the universe will tell you. So that, see, they hadn't found a Higgs boson. And let's say another five years went by and they hadn't found a Higgs boson. And Sarah Demers called you up and said, you know, I don't think it's down here in this thing. Um, would your reaction then have been, well, then there's something else. There is a way to, under the universe will explain itself to us if we ask the right questions. The universe would be telling us that we have to find a different explanation. Mm. I should also mention that one person did not think that would find, we would find a Higgs boson, and that was Stephen Hawking. Mm. Um, I actually, I, I say somewhat sheepishly, was in a little bit in that camp as well. But nonetheless, its discovery is there, and I think it's a very clean result. And this obliges us to go back and think about these deep questions a lot more. And uh, just uh, as uh, Dr. Kaku said, uh, I think it's forcing us to ask some very deep questions. I would not quite go in the direction that he's going in, but the issue is there because, the, the, as Sarah said, it's in the data. Now, I wanted to mention one thing about the search for the Higgs boson. Um, we have this huge machine. It smashes particles together. Now, if I gave you a, a glass and I, you put a thumb mark on a little bit of the glass, and then you drop the glass, and it broke into a million pieces. And I would say to you, find the piece with the thumb mark. You'd have a, a big job to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, basically, that's what is happening at the Large Hadron Collider. There are no less than a 1,000 trillion collisions occurring, and they found eight events that they can associate with the Higgs boson. Now, just... If you'll bear with me, I wanted to give you one analogy. If you think of the search for this Malayan plain in the Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. you're talking about a 1,000 miles by a 1,000 miles, and you're looking for a piece of the fuselage which might be one yard by one yard. That is one in a trillion. Mm -hmm. Here we're talking about one in a 1,000 trillion. <laughs> so it's a 1,000 times more difficult to find the Higgs boson, even if it's there and you've produced it, to pull it out of all the data, than it is to find um, any, any um, debris from this Malay Malayan jet that apparently went down in the Indian Ocean. So it's an immense problem. And to go back to the thing we'll talk about in a, in a moment, developing the electronics and developing the ability and the computing to actually do this is something that is is tremendously valuable for general society. And and, and uh, just to piggyback onto that, Dr. Sarah Demers, one of the things that emerges in this movie, Particle Fever, is the degree to which this is this incredible team effort in which international differences are set aside. Uh, somebody makes the point, you know, a lot of the people uh, in the super collider or at the super collider are from countries that are mortal enemies uh, uh, of one another above ground. And, and there's also, I think, this kind of sense of collective sacrifice, too, that, that everybody's working on this team effort. There probably aren't going to be superstars so much. I mean, the you know, Peter Higgs has already got his name on the particle. So, you know, you're not going to get that. that. That there's this incredible effort by a lot of people uh, to do this very important thing. Yeah, absolutely. We're relying on a lot of people to do their jobs very, very well. And uh, it, it, there's there's a lot of teamwork that's involved. Um, you know, there 
tensions can be high sometimes at the end of the day we need to work things out and I, I think the reason that it actually ends up working is that we all share the same goal of getting to the correct answer so it, it wouldn't work otherwise because none of us are actually well very few of us are being paid by anyone else in these collaborations um yeah, it, it only works because we're all going for the same goal, and that is the th- that's understanding nature, right? If we were trying to to argue for our own particular theories with the data itself, then then things would certainly fall apart. Is it? I, this is a stupid question, but is it fun? I mean, it se- watching the movie. It seems like people. I mean, you, obviously there are tensions at the end of the day, as you say, uh, but it seems like people are really excited. The people who are who are there. It's incredibly fun, and the the incredible fun is punctuated by, you know, despair of your code not working and and lots and lots of hours. And, um, you know, I get up often at 3 o'clock in the morning to connect because the the Higgs group that I'm co-convening has a – my collaborators in Australia. So I'm up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and when my alarm goes off, there's there's part of me that thinks, this is insane. This is ridiculous. And then there's another part of me that thinks, oh, my God. Gosh, you know, I can't believe I get to get up at three o'clock in the morning and and talk to people and see what progress they've made overnight. And yeah, so it's it's um, it's fun and it's horrible at the same time. But but overall, I think I think the community feels like it's a privilege that we get to go after these kinds of questions. We keep that in mind as we're going. You'd have to ask a sixth year graduate student how much fun it is probably to get a real answer to that question, though. All right. And also there is, as uh, Dr. Michio Kaku was uh, talking about, just just the whole life of a physicist living for 30 years with with a theoretical model that, you know, better better work. Uh, So we're going to play a little clip from the movie. A theoretical physicist, Savas Dimopoulos, is expressing frustration about the uncertainty of theoretical physicist, never knowing if you really are on that right path for 30 years or more. Coffee is a very serious business in the life of a theorist. Within a few minutes, it pays off. If you succeed, it's great. If you fail, you get to try another one in another minute. In particle physics, you construct a theory 20 years ago and it may take that long before you know if you're on the right track. Jumping from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm is the big secret to success. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with our final segment, uh, plus your phone calls, your questions. You can tweet questions to us at WNPRColin. You can email me later at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Space-time is curved and gravitational fields can slow the passage of time. Anyone who's ever sat through a legislative committee hearing can confirm this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and Tess Aronson. The part of Bill Curry was played by Stephen Hawking. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff sprinkling red Himalayan bosoms on some risotto, visit WNPR.org. Tomorrow, our show goes hip-hop. I mean, even more so than usual. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're heading down the home stretch uh, of a show that seems very short. 
talk about uh, changes in our perception of time. Uh, not enough time to have this conversation. Uh, conversation about the search for the Higgs boson, the finding of the Higgs boson, the measurement of the Higgs boson. So, um, Michio, Dr. Michio Kaku, I'm going to uh, let you uh, start out this part of the discussion. I have a tweet here from Dave who says, I'd love to ask a physicist, what practical purpose does the discovery of these particles serve other than pure curiosity? What's your answer to that? Well, in the short term, it has no practical application whatsoever. However, in the long term, hopefully it'll answer some of the deepest philosophical, even theological and religious questions that have haunted us for generations. For example, what happened before the Big Bang? What happened before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Can time go backwards? Can you go backwards in time? Why does time go forwards? Are there other universes? Are there other laws of physics? Can you have gateways, gateways that take you to other dimensions? Now, all these questions are not answerable within Newtonian, Einsteinian, and even quantum mechanical uh, theory. You need a higher theory, and hopefully we'll find dark matter with the next generation of experiments, and hopefully dark matter will prove the correctness of string theory, though we don't know for sure. But if we do, then string theory does have the capability of answering all those questions. And so Einstein asked the question, you know, uh, why, why do we have something rather than nothing? Uh, Einstein asked the question, you know, where did the Big Bang come from? We're, we'll be able to answer these questions, but it means that we have to have particle accelerators like the LHC and maybe even the replacement for the LHC to be based in Japan, the uh, ILC, another accelerator that the Japanese government wants to back, we think that these, uh, these experiments may prove the existence of a higher theory, and this higher theory will be able to answer some of the deepest philosophical questions that have dogged philosophers for generations. So that's one way to look at it. Um, Dr. Philip Mannheim, another way to look at it, obviously, is uh, if you uh, decide you're going to try to go to the moon, you have to build and invent a lot of stuff that will allow you to get to the moon. And while you're doing that, you're going to build and invent a lot of stuff that really does have immediate practical applications. Um, I'm assuming with the Large Hadron Collider, it's the same thing. Just a, an undertaking of, of that consequence is going to create all kinds of things. Um. Certainly, there are spin-offs in science which are immediate, and of course, perhaps the most famous one is at the same facility at CERN, where the Large Hadron Collider is. That famous one is the World Wide Web, which was developed by people working there, these large groups who needed to communicate with each other. And its value is absolutely enormous, and that's clear. So there are going to be spin-offs um, which are immediately practical. However, there are other things that will turn out to be practical that you had no idea about at the beginning. And the reason is you try to find the general rule, and from the general rule you then get the specific, mm -hmm. and then you get to the application. And the example I always present to people is Einstein's relativity, this idea of curved space, seems completely esoteric. Mm -hmm. However, the global positioning satellite system has to take into consideration the curvature of the universe in order for, of the, of the surface of the Earth, uh, near the Earth, in order to account for uh, exact positioning. And what you can say, and I think this is the real answer to the question, it is beyond 
possibility that the military, in aiming at satellites and constantly being wrong, would have discovered general relativity in order to explain the small departures that they were uh, finding. So really, you need to get the rule itself, and then the applications follow, but they may not follow for a very long time. So I think physics is practical. You could ask the simple question, well, suppose no one had ever done any physics in history. Mm. Suppose we, we, I mean, what would we be now? We'd still be uh, an agrarian uh, society living in caves, probably. I mean, every, most of the things that we do are, are physics. Um, this program uses electronics that was developed through the development of quantum mechanics at the, in, in the 1920s with no view to the electronic applications. But as soon as people understood the electronics, the, the laws, then they could do the electronics. So it, the, the payoffs are there, but they are very long-term, and they are simply not what you've expected. And perhaps the best way I can say this is this. When you have a targeted thing to try to figure out, you only ask a limited number of questions because you can only ask the questions related to what you already know. But when you discover something new, you also discover new questions, which you would otherwise never have thought of. Um, Sarah Demers, I want to give you a chance to talk about this, too. I mean, you're home for the holidays. It's Thanksgiving. Everybody's sitting around the table. There's some uncle who's getting on your case. What are you doing? What are you doing over there in Switzerland? What's the, what's the point of all this? Uh, how do you answer that question? Well, I have to defend my uncle, first of all. all right. He's he's my biggest fan. Okay. Um, Bad example. But Yeah, right. But Thanksgiving was a great example because I would say, you know that really strong shrink wrap that you use that, that, that keeps the turkey together? The shrink wrap has actually been treated by particle accelerators to make it stronger so that you don't need as much material for a strong shrink wrap. Or the rubber in tires that you have. We need 30% less rubber in tires because it's treated by accelerator beams. Or I'd point to cancer treatment um, diagnosis, treatment, applications, um, right? The answer to that question really depends on who you're talking to, but I think there's always a, a pretty good answer to that question. Um, let me just uh, sort of just to round out that part of the conversation. Here's uh, John. Well, actually, I should put John in another line here. Hang on just a second here. I'll put John over here. Uh, John from Southington calling in. Hi, John. Hey, Colin. How you doing? Just fine. The practicality aspect of it, I mean, nobody knew that x-rays were going to be useful until somebody went and found them, and they didn't find them by saying, I'm going to go discover x-rays today, and the same thing with nuclear magnetic resonance and MRIs. So a lot of these things, as, you, as your experts have said, you don't know what they are until you sort of pull back the cover of darkness. Yeah, thanks very much for that call. Um, Dr. Sarah Demers, uh, we're, we are really running out of time here, but one of the things that fascinated me about this movie, um, which, once again, will be shown at Real Artways uh, on, starting on Friday night, and both uh, Dr. Philip Mannheim and Sarah Demers are going to be there, uh, Particle Fever. One of the things that, that the movie gets into are these kind of odd parallels to the arts. Um, you see that some of the scientists have a, a love of the arts. One of the, uh, one of the physicists is uh, Fabiola Giannotti is, uh, is a, a very gifted pianist. You see two theoretical physicists, David Kaplan and, and Nima Arkani Hamed, looking at this sculpture, uh, this kind of very, very deconstructed, abstract sculpture and beginning to talk about it. And, and, and at the end, Savas Demopoulos, who we just heard a, a second ago, says, why do we do science? 
well, why do we do art? It is the things that are not directly necessary for survival that make us human. There seems a parallel, even in your video about dance, which was something of a comedic undertaking, but also I think somewhat serious. There's something about what we do in the arts and what's being done here, although I'm struggling to make that connection, and I'm hoping uh, against hope that you uh, can make it for me. Right, so now you're getting my my opinion as a a person and a practicing physicist, but I can't claim to be an expert um, here. I, I think that the what it comes down to in terms of the link between the physicists you see in the movie and the arts is that the physicists are human beings, right? Mm-hmm. That the idea that you have the the logical scientist on one side and the creative artist on the other side, I think it's just a it's a false stereotype. So I, I think that's really foundational about why all of these links pop up. There's something a little bit deeper, and it it. Um, the best way I know to to present this is through the idea of why why bother doing this. This question of practical applications, that's a question that those of us who are doing basic science face, and it's also a question that people doing art face, right? What is practical that comes out of this? So in some ways, the, the scientists you have who are going after some of these um, some of these questions that that are motivated maybe for for having a deeper understanding of the universe. Um, they they want something that's that's simpler or that sheds some light and and some truth and maybe is guided by aesthetics, a simple theory. Um, you could be talking about the particle theorist or or experimentalist, and you also could be talking about the artist. So I I do think that there are deeper ties there just as a result of the fact that we're all going for something that you can't definitely defend as practical. I mean, it sort of goes back to what Dr. Kaku was saying before, that that a lot of these questions are questions of what are we doing here? What is this place? What what kinds of things are there? Um, What kind of universe is this that we're living in? Those are questions for the physicist, but they're also questions that artists, that poets and composers and painters uh, and sculptors ask over and over again in their own way. Um, We have to stop it here. I'm really, really sorry because we're just kind of getting warmed up here. But Dr. Philip Mannheim, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Professor of Physics at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Michio Kaku, uh, thank you for joining us from from Switzerland. The new book is The Future of the Mind. Dr. Sarah Demers, uh, down in New Haven, Assistant Professor of Physics at Yale University, and part of that uh, Atlas group that you will see if you go to see the movie Particle Fever. Lambda particles, eta and omega particles, charged particles, charming particles, up, down, strange and spinning particles, bottomonium, muons and gluons and quarks. I'm Kyone Wolf, and now that the Dankosky Building medium-sized super collider is up and running, time for some experiments. I'm pretty sure if I push this button and pull this lever, we can bend space-time so the show won't end.